I want to invite you to get your Bibles right now and turn to the book of Acts. We're going to continue our time in Acts, and in particular, particular uh, chapter, uh, you know, it's going to be a rough day already, right? Um, in particular, uh, chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, we're going to stand and we're going to read a long section because it's one unit, and um, Chris is going to come and he's going to read for us. Let's stand together, Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem and to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and there had been much debate. And Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by the mouth of the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all of the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. The remnant of the mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for it is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, 
they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading them among the brothers, and with the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and have troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we have given them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Lord, we come to you this, this morning, Lord, with this passage before us, Lord, that, that really deals with a very, very important topic. And Lord, I ask that in our time together this morning, that as we walk through the content of this passage, that the important and salient point of this passage will resound in our hearts. Uh, Lord, that we who have come to you by faith will not feel the burden of somehow adding works to our lives to please you or even thinking that works are necessary, Lord, to come and to be the recipient of your gospel. But Lord, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Lord, we can so easily drift, we can so easily be, um, uh, Lord, lack of knowledge, or, or be deceived into thinking that we need to do something that you are not calling for us to do. So Lord, what we know not would you teach us. And what we are not, Lord, would you continue to make us? And Lord, what we have not, would you give us in Jesus' name? And allow me as your messenger, Lord, to be faithful to your truth and to your gospel so that your people can be built up in the faith and that those who do not know you, Lord, would, would be, uh, Lord, just in awe of your wonderful, glorious gospel and be saved. We ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, I'm sure that most of us are familiar with the concept of conferences, in particular, Christian conferences. I 
have attended through the years many different kinds of conferences. And typically, they're a gathering of people to be encouraged or strengthened uh, based on maybe who you are. So we go to a pastor's conference, and we hear from other pastors about how to do pastoral ministry and struggles and that kind of stuff. Sometimes there are greater church conferences. Uh, more recently, the past few years, there's been this conference called the Sing Conference, which is really emphasizing the, the wonderful power of music in the context of the church and, and how that can be done rightly in ways in which we want to make sure that we avoid because we don't want to undermine the gospel and the things that God is about. So we're familiar with conferences, but I wonder whether we're familiar with the concept of councils. Uh, when was the last time any of you went to a church council? It's probably not too many of you, if, if none of you, all right? Because councils are a little bit different. But through the years, there have been some important councils. More recently, you may or, not, may or may not be aware of this, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, headed up by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. This happened back in 1987, and they tackled the issue of defining manhood and womanhood for the sake of the body to bring clarity to that topic. And of course, today, uh, that is a helpful tool for us to be able to look back on and make those distinctions. Another one took place back in 1978. It was called the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. And part of the participation there was John MacArthur, Jaya Packer, Francis Schaeffer, R.C. Sproul, and others. And the goal there was to really uh, establish the inerrancy of Scripture, that Scripture was without error. And it ultimately resulted in what was called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And the issue, these issues rose up in the culture and needed to be addressed by leading pastors around the country so that the church could be strengthened and be built up and not be confused. Unfortunately, many, if not most, contemporary councils have tended towards ecumenicism. And ecumenicism is basically a big word that means we want to gather all the people under the big tent of Christianity and somehow you know, get along, right? And what happens with ecumenicism is everything kind of drops to the lowest common denominator and it ends up being one big horrible mess. And so as a result of that, the councils have tended toward, you know, embracing theological liberalism, which then embraces things like LGBTQ, the social justice advocacy, viewing Jesus as a good example or a role model rather than the God-man who paid for our sins on the cross, or the Bible contains the word of God or becomes the word of God, but is not actually the inspired word of God. This is what happens, unfortunately. Two of the more prominent councils are the World Council of Churches and the National Council of Churches, which are by far incredibly liberal and void of true gospel content. Now, what is a church council? It's a time when church leaders gather to deliberate on a topic, an issue, a person, a movement, or a teaching that is causing or has the potential of causing division in the church so that a scriptural and unified decision can be made for the ongoing health and unity of the body of Christ. And in the history of the church, councils were necessary to, to, to bring clarity to important doctrines and to confront heresy. For example, uh, here are two of the, the more famous ones, the Council of Nicaea, 
This is in 325, affirmed the deity of Christ and rejected the Arian heresy. Another one, the Council of Chalcedon, clarified the teaching concerning Christ's nature and person that, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. We are standing on the foundation of such councils. The church needed that kind of clarity. But as the church kind of grew and, and got larger and became far more Catholic, more universal and broad, and ultimately a Roman Catholic church was established, the councils tended now to diminish from being truly biblical, adding tradition and all this kind of stuff. For example, the Council of Trent in 1545 and following condemned the teachings of Luther and the reformers and officially recognized the Apocrypha as canonical. They would be offended by the songs that we sang this morning, by the commitments that we were saying in those songs. It would be considered anathema. So councils are not always good, but they have been greatly used in the history of the church when godly men have come together to deal with an issue. And friends, this is what we have in our text. This is, we might say, the most important historical council of the church ever. All right? Why? Because this particular council, the Jerusalem council, is deliberating on the nature of salvation. Is salvation by grace alone? Or is salvation by grace plus something? And what Luke wants us to see is that no matter where you're from or what your background is, salvation is always by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No matter where you're from, whether you're from, from England or France or Egypt or Russia or Ukraine or Alaska or the North Pole, if anyone lives there, I don't know. Wherever you're from, whatever your background is, whatever your culture is, Salvation is always by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And friends, I understand this is something that we know here, and we should at least. This is part of our church DNA, our doctrinal understanding. But making sure that this is understood was critical for the ongoing health of the church. In fact, we go down to verse 11 in our text, we find the key statement that is made by Peter in particular. But we believe we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. The church of God cannot afford to get this one wrong. What happens with this early conflict and how the apostles and elders respond to it will have a profound impact on the church going forward. Now notice the following statements at the end of our text and a little bit beyond. Look at verse 32, if you would, please. As, this is all as a result of this council and the decisions that were made. Now they're coming back and they're telling the church. Notice what it says in verse 32. They strengthened the brothers. Look, if you would, at verse 41. He strengthened the churches. Verse, chapter 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith. This is all happening now as a result of the way in which and the decisions that were made at this Jerusalem council. The church is strengthened. And this is always the goal. 
And this is what takes place here. And friends, it is important for us to see because this is critical for our understanding of what the true gospel is. And as Ed mentioned, and as I mentioned, or Albert mentions when we do the announcements, the first thing we want to say, the first we want to make sure people understand is that Gateway Bible Church is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel is a gospel of grace alone, not grace plus works. Now, the reality is, friends, that the success of the Jerusalem Council has borne fruit in our existence as a church. And we should be thankful for the kind of godly leadership and example we see in this text. And we should also seek to emulate the essential ethics that drove the leadership in coming to their unanimous conclusion. So there's a number of different themes that are going to be kind of going on in this text. But our passage really is divided into three sections. Section one, the problem, that's verses one through five. These are not your headings. But there's the problem. Verses 6 through 21 is the actual council, the convening of the council, the deliberation of the council. And then verses 22 through 35 is the answer, I'm going to say, the result, the fruit of the council. Let's begin now by looking what I'm calling grace divided. Grace divided. In these first five verses, Luke establishes and exposes the problem that arose and is affecting the churches. This is about 15 plus years after Pentecost. If you remember at Pentecost, God pours out his spirit on the people that are there. They embrace Christ as their Lord and Savior. And as the gospel goes forward into Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the Gentile world, that gospel continues. It continues on. But now we're back in Antioch, right? Acts 14, uh, verse 27 and 28, as after, after Barnabas and, and Paul have been on their first missionary journey, they end up with, uh, with, with, with this record. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, uh, gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. They're saying God has been at work in and through us, and God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. In other words, God has been doing his thing through us. This is God's work. And friends, that was good news for the believers in Antioch, as well as answered prayer back in Acts 13, verse 2. The Holy Spirit set apart Barnabas and Saul for this particular work. In verse 3, it says there, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. There was a partnership going on. There was prayer going on. All this was the fruit of God's work through these missionaries going into these Gentile territories. So now Paul and Barnabas are back in Antioch and have been there for a long time with the disciples. And it's during this time that a conflict arises within the church. We're told that there are some who are not happy with Paul and Barnabas' gospel. They're not happy with their missionary message. Why? Because it doesn't go far enough. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the cartoon movie Despicable Me. If you have, you'll understand this. But the main character's name is Gru. And through the story, he has these flashbacks of being a child. And he's making this wonderful drawing as a little child for his mom. And he takes it to his mother and he shows it to her all excited. And she looks at it and goes, eh. Right, And then he builds some contraction, and it's all this wonderful contraction with all sorts of, I don't know, some little toy-type things, and brings it to his mom. Look at this, mom. And she's like, eh. And then he builds this big, huge rocket, right? 
incredible rocket. And he says, Mom, Mom, look, I built a rocket. I built a rocket. And she looks at it and he goes, eh, right? Now, we all know people like that. We all know the kind of people who are just the, 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 the party of the Pharisees in our text, the people who are rarely encouraging, often joyless, often cynical when good things take place and tend to be nitpicky and critical and just give us this kind of aura that we're just not good enough. We haven't done enough. We're not, we haven't accomplished enough. And they're the kind of bubble-bursting, fault-finding people that are real discouragement rather than encouragement to the body of Christ. Now, the issue here, friends, is no small thing. Uh, Winston Churchill shares in his, um, in his biography uh, a time when there was, he was out at a, a party, kind of an outdoor gathering, kind of having a picnic, and there was water there, and people were going swimming, and there was a boy that was in the water, but he was drowning. And he comes up for air, and he can't swim, and he's drowning, he's drowning, while other people on shore, they, they couldn't swim either. They didn't know what to do. And then out from nowhere comes this, this man, and he dives into the water, swims out, and rescues this boy, and brings him back to the mother. And the mother says, and where is his hat? We can have a tendency to be like that in life. But we can also have a tendency to be like that with the gospel and with God's truth. So the issue here is no small thing. And for them, because of their culture and upbringing in a Jewish context, it's natural for them to be concerned. Why? Well, this is that they grew up in a Jewish context where rules and regulations were put in place for different reasons. Now notice, first of all, the dissension of God's grace. Their dissension involves two things, circumcision and the keeping of the law. Let's first of all talk about circumcision. I'm not going to describe it or define it. If you don't know what it is, ask someone around you. They'll be able to help you out. But it all begins with these unnamed men coming down from Judea, and they're teaching the brothers that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You see the strength of the statement here? Unless... You cannot be. <laughs> what they're saying is that it is not enough for Gentiles to believe in the gospel, to be baptized even, or even to have the Holy Spirit. In order to be saved, you also have to be circumcised. You have to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses. Now, understandably, their teaching did not set well with Paul and Barnabas, and we're told there that this large disagreement and debate took place because it undermined the gospel that Jesus had been teaching, that he came and, and taught his, his disciples and then the apostles. And as a result of this conflict, the church in Antioch sends Paul and Barnabas to go to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem to discuss this new teaching. What is, uh, was this something that their brothers in Jerusalem were teaching because they, you know, these people came from Judea, same kind of territory. Had they encountered the same issues in Jerusalem? How should the church respond? Now, the second issue now, we find at the latter part of, of this small section here, verse 5, some believers belonged to the party of the Pharisees. They rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. 
So not only did they confront, uh, was the party of the Pharisees now coming and confronting them and saying, look, you have to be circumcised. When Paul and Barnabas now get to Jerusalem and they share what's going on, there is a group of people there that agree with this ideology and repeat it, but a little differently. But it's the same kind of thing, right? It is necessary, which is very similar to saying, unless. So here's the argument from the dissenting group, the party of the Pharisees. In order for salvation to truly take place, not only must the Gentile hearers believe and be filled with the Spirit, they must also be circumcised and be keepers of the law of the Jews. Sorry, the law of Moses. What they are calling for is that Gentile converts become proselyte Jews. In other words, to adopt a Jewish lifestyle rather than to adopt this new Christian lifestyle. Okay. Now these two requirements for salvation, circumcision and keeping of the law, and they flesh out today in these two categories by means of principle. They flesh out, first of all, really identifying trying to appease God by one's appearance. Secondly, trying to appease God by one's performance. Now, friends, this is the mistake that religion today makes, isn't it? They try and think that I can somehow bridge the gap between me and God by my appearance. Or I can bridge this gap between me and God by my performance. I can, I can do something to myself that will show that I'm, I, I should be blessed by God. Or I can perform something, some practice, some ritual to somehow prove to God and, and show to God that I am worthy. And so I don't think it's a stretch to say that you can boil down most of today's religions to this principle, that something about your appearance or your performance is what will make you acceptable to God. But friends, that is not what the gospel is. That is not what the scriptures teach at all. That is gospel plus something. Well, let's just think through this. Your appearance, the way you dress, the clothes you wear, the style of your hair, the length and style of your beard. I remember one of the first times I was in Ufa, Bashkortostan, which is in Russia, and I was looking at the, the pictures of the pastors that used to be a part of this church. It was the central church in that town. And I noticed something that was unique about them. They all have big, long beards. And it was as if, you know, the more spirit you are, the longer your beard was, right? This is true, I think, in that context. It's also true in the Muslim context. Beards are important. In the um, Hindu context also, right? How you wash, where you wash, when you wash, these are all things that have to do with your appearance. You're trying to make yourself acceptable to God it's as if you're saying to yourself, I can conform my external, and if I do that, it will please God, bring restoration. I'll still be good with him. Or how about your performance? Your moral resume that you have put together, you present to God. Your observance of the five pillars of Islam, the seven principles, the seven virtues, the seven spiritual laws, the 12 steps, a pilgrimage to Rome or, or to Mecca or whatever it is, it's all as if you can perform in such a way as to make God please and undo all the things, all the sin that you have committed through the years simply by your performance. Friends, that's foolishness. That is not the gospel. But that is, is it not, 
human religion. And friends, it is a bondage. It's a lifelong bondage and anxiety that I might not make it because I failed in my appearance and performance. I mean, just imagine what it would be like if it were true that God measured you by those things. Our counseling ministry would be huge because you're all so panicked and anxious because one day you think you're good, the next day you're not. What's going to happen? I don't know. And what ends up happening in one particular religion is you end up being in this holding tank until you can work things off. And then somehow God is going to welcome you in. That's bondage, friends. Bondage. But in the midst of all this dissension, there is delight. (laughs) Notice it, verses 3 and 4. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through the, the, both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to the brothers. This is as they're making their way back to Jerusalem, stopping in different towns and visiting the churches there. And people are rejoicing. This is what God is doing. Wow, this is fantastic news. And then we continue reading. When they come to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. God had been at work in and through them to bring about the conversion of the Gentiles. This is wonderful news. This is a delight. And once again, this report reflects the faithfulness of Christ's mission his gospel and the apostles that are on that mission being faithful to do what Christ called them to do. Yet, here you have this dissension. So you have delight going on and you have dissension. What's the church going to do when such division is present in the church? How will they address this new doctrine that has been promoted throughout Judea and now has reached Antioch, a doctrine that will have rippling effects throughout the church if it is not addressed and not dealt with. Now we get to not grace divided, but grace deliberated. So having come to terms with what they need to address, this false teaching, we read in verse 6 that the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And they're gathered together to deliberate, which is a word that simply means to think about or discuss the issues and, and decisions carefully, and ultimately to make a decision. And apparently there was a lot of discussion from different people, but Luke wants to draw our attention to three pieces of testimony. First Peter, then Paul and Barnabas, and then James. So let's notice first of all, and by the way, they're not kind of like just repeating each other, they're building on each other. First of all, Peter speaks. And we can summarize what he's saying with this statement, we're all saved by grace alone. But there's three parts to Peter's speech. First of all, he communicates God's gospel. And here's what he says. They have received the same gospel. This is verse 7. Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's speaking about an earlier time in the, the birth of the church where God commissioned him in a special commissioning. And this is what happened, if you remember, when he has this vision 
and the sheet comes down from, from the sky, and it has all these different animals, and God says, go ahead and eat, and some of those things are unclean things, and he's like, I can't eat those unclean things, and the whole point was God was saying to him, it's okay to go to the Gentiles, it's okay to go to the Gentiles, you're free to go to the Gentiles, there's no restriction, you can go, you will not be offending me, you will not be unclean. And so he goes to Cornelius's house, and he has table fellowship with the people there, and he even stays there overnight, which would have been unheard of typically for a Jew. But it's the same gospel, he says. In fact, in Acts 11, you want to go back there in verse 17, we get the punchline of those events. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, to the Gentiles, God also has granted repentance that leads to life. The same gospel that God granted to Israel, the Jews, those who would believe, is the same gospel that the Gentiles now are embracing. So they have the same gospel, but they also have the same Holy Spirit. It says, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just like he did us. So God is the one who's witnessing. He's the one that sees the heart. He's the one that is giving them this gospel, but he's also giving them the Holy Spirit. If you remember, that is, that is what happened to those who, who believed. In fact, we have it in chapter 2, verse 4. He did it in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. He did it in Samaria when Peter and John arrived there, as Acts chapter 8, verse 14 and following. He did it in Caesarea in the home of Cornelius. The Holy Spirit was granted. So if the heart-seeking God had publicly certified these Gentiles as genuine believers by granting them the Holy Spirit, what need was there to insist upon circumcision or the keeping of the law. Third, they received the same forgiveness. And he made no distinction between them, having cleansed their heart by faith. That cleansing of their heart by faith is the forgiveness. He makes no distinction to say, oh, the Jews are saved this way, but the Gentiles, they have to do this in order to be saved. No, it's all the same thing. Now, to us, that makes sense. We've been around a while. We, we've, you know, we function as a church and we hear about the gospel. But to these people, this was an issue. Why? Because there were two different groups and there was this great division, the Jews and the Gentiles. And God is continuing now to work among his apostles to help them clarify not only the fact that the gospel can go to them, but what the gospel looks like. It's not a different gospel. It's the very same gospel. So Peter is saying, this is the same gospel authenticated by the same Holy Spirit resulting in the same forgiveness. That's Peter's speech. Not only that, though, that's the first part of his speech. In verse 10, he confronts then their Pharisaical yoke. Since the Gentiles have received the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, why are you putting God to the test? by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Now, if you've ever read the Old Testament, in particular the first five books of the Old Testament, and you hone in on the wilderness experience of Israel, the last thing you want to do is to put God to the test. 
This is less of a question and more of a declaration to not test God. The yoke here being talked about is the burden or the requirement of circumcision and the keeping of the law. So let's just hone in a little bit on circumcision. Circumcision was never about being acceptable to God. As if you could ever do something with your body that would make God pleased with you in some way. It was only ever an outward sign that pointed to a deeper spiritual reality, an inner reality of cleansing that God promised to do in the heart. He has cleansed their hearts by faith, verse 9 says. Friends, everything that circumcision ever stood for has been fulfilled by the work of Christ, and that is entirely by God's free grace not based on anything that we have done. William Cooper's poem, which is now put to him, you know it well, says this, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged, what? Beneath that blood. It says, lose all their guilty stain. Christ has done it all. Not just a little bit of it, All of it. Now, keeping the law was only ever a reminder of man's inability to come to God on his own merit. Man would only ever fall short and have to appease God through what? An animal sacrifice. And it is that animal sacrifice that ultimately pointed to Jesus, the Savior, the sacrifice once for all. So why lay this burden on the back of the Gentiles when you or your fathers could never, ever measure up? And then he commends their united salvation through through grace. Verse verse 11, we've already read it. But, this is contrast now, but we believe that we will be saved by grace alone just as they will. We, the Jews, will be saved by grace alone, just as they will the Gentiles. So Jews and Gentiles alike are only ever saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They are united to a common salvation through grace. Now, the impact of Peter's speech is that all the assembly fell silent. Not asleep, but silent. Why? Because they had nothing to say to contradict what he was communicating. The second speech we have here is really brief, and it's one that's already been repeated, but is necessary here, and that's the speech of Barnabas and and Paul. Verse 12, and the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. The salient point of this testimony is that God had performed signs and wonders through them among the Gentiles. In other words, these were immediate acts or works of God that served to authenticate Paul and Barnabas and their message. God would not be doing that if the gospel that they were proclaiming was not the true gospel. This was God at work. Just as God had, or, uh, had credentialed Peter's ministry in the home of Cornelius with signs and wonders, so God had credentialed and authenticated Paul and Barnabas and their ministry among the Gentiles. 
And then third, we have James' speech. And this is a little bit longer. And basically what he's saying is this. What Peter has said is true. And it, it, it agrees with what the prophets say. So we could rightly say that Peter's response summarizes what God was doing in Acts 10 and 11. Paul and Barnabas' response summarizes what has taken place in Acts 13 and 14. Now James speaks, he's the half-brother of Jesus, and the one who has written the book by his name, recognizes a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. And he basically is saying two things. The gospel is by grace alone. Secondly, believers are called to exercise charity. So I wasn't expecting that. Neither was I. But here's, here's the point. First of all, the gospel matters. It is by grace alone. James will emphasize a wider biblical context. Peter has, in his testimony, talked about his encounter with the Lord, right? that vision that he had, the message that he was given to preach. Paul and Barnabas have, have talked about, again, God's commission and what they went out doing, and it was all God's work. So this is all kind of experiential but divine and these are apostles, if you remember, too, so that, that is significant. But James kind of changes it a little bit, doesn't he? He affirms the words of, of Simeon, it's the Peter's Hebrew name, that the Gentile mission was God's plan, and what Peter says is true, that God has visited the Gentile, meaning he has brought salvation to them, granted faith to them through Jesus Christ. But, but notice also, he gives place to the priority of scriptures. In other words, we may all talk and give our opinions, share our experience, but no counsel has any authority unless it can be shown that its conclusions are in accord with Scripture. So James says what Peter says agrees with what the prophets foretold. And he's not going to go through all the prophets necessarily and show that, but he chooses one section of Scripture and that would be uh, the book of Amos, verses, uh, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, because it reflects or gives example of what the prophets teach as a whole. It says this, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who, make, uh, who makes these things, known from of old. John Stott summarizes this, uh, this citation, uh, or James' citation of Amos in this way. I think it's helpful. He says, God promises first to restore David's fallen tent and rebuild its ruins, and he puts them parentheses here, which Christian eyes see as a prophecy of the resurrection and exaltation of Christ, the seed of David, and the establishment of his people. So God promises first to restore David's fallen tent and rebuild his ruins so that secondly, a Gentile remnant will seek the Lord. In other words, this is still his words now, through the Davidic Christ, Gentiles will be included in this new community. What he's showing is that this gospel, this grace that is apart from works, apart from circumcision, apart from keeping the law, is something that the prophets foretold that a Messiah would come. Our sins would be paid for by an ultimate sacrifice, and that would be Jesus. And it wasn't just for the Jews. It was also for the Gentiles who are welcomed in by the very same gospel. 
If that is true then, we have agreement with Peter, with Paul and Barnabas, and with James. If that is true, then all obstacles to the gospel of grace should be removed, and the Gentiles should be welcomed to trust in Christ alone and join the community of faith. That it is by grace alone that one is saved. You see, you see friends, the, the critical nature of what's going on here in this council. We here sit in our church, and I don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord, but if you're a true follower of Christ, you are saved by grace alone. Right? If you're a practicing Catholic, you believe that you're saved by grace plus works, plus having to do certain things. That is not the gospel that is taught in the Old Testament. It's not the gospel that's taught in the New Testament. But friends, clarity on this was important in the early church. And so the conclusion for James was, therefore, we should not trouble these Gentile converts. In other words, we shouldn't make it difficult for them. We shouldn't impose some irksome restrictions. How many of you like irksome restrictions? No, this is freedom in Christ. But not only does it say, that the gospel matters, he also says that fellowship matters. And so he's kind of the, the guy who's bringing it all together and declaring now a judgment. And he's saying we shouldn't burden the Gentiles with circumcision and the keeping of the law, but we should ask them to exercise charity toward the Jews. How? By avoiding some practices that may be offensive to Jewish believers. See, James reminds the brothers, verse 21, from the, uh, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. In other words, the Jews had spread around in that known world. And wherever they have gone, they've established synagogues. And, and, the, and the, the Old Testament scriptures are read every Sabbath. So wherever the Gentiles are, there's likely going to be Jews. And if the gospel is going out and there are Jewish converts, or even if they're not Jewish converts, there are Gentile converts, the Jews are going to look at the Gentiles and they don't want to be offended by the Gentiles who are now living their lives, having been the recipient of this grace alone. There's a consideration that is necessary then for this people group who then potentially could be struggling with some of the issues that are before them. So James lays out what the Gentile believers should avoid for the sake of fellowship. And he lists four things. And they're really all ceremonial type things. James asks, first of all, that Gentile believers should avoid contact with pollution that comes from idols. For example, meat that has been offered to idols, which Paul discusses in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14. Jews would avoid anything that is associated with idol worship. Sexual immorality. Immorality in general, yes, but more specifically, the kind of sexual orgies that were associated with the pagan rites and temple prostitution. And then we get into these, these next two things that kind of go hand in hand. They all have to do with, with food and animals, but strangled things, as well as blood. And they, they, the, the Jews were, were not allowed to eat something that was strangled, and part of that, my understanding, is because uh, when you strangle an animal rather than kill the animal, the, the blood doesn't drain quite like it does 
if you, if you kill it differently. So these are some, I want to say, guidelines, some stipulations, some ways in which the Gentiles now could adjust their lifestyle so as to accommodate and have fellowship with Jews, in particular Jews who were converts. Now, friends, this is exercising charity. The point here is not that the Gentiles are now bound by these Mosaic laws, but that they should be careful and sensitive to avoid these practices so as not to bring any suspicion or offense to the Jews. This is practical wisdom, friends, for we all bring old ideas and practices into our Christian walk, don't we? I remember when I was... Oh, in college, or even some years after I was in college, I remember walking through a mall. Malls are those things, places you go shopping at, by the way, just in case, you know, when Amazon wasn't around, this is what we would do. We would go to malls and we would shop. And one of the things I found when I would go into some places was they always played 80s music. And for me, that was difficult. Why? Because my pre-Christ life, was early 80s, late 70s. You're kind of getting my age now, right? And all these songs brought back associations with old life habits and behaviors. And sometimes I had to walk out of the boutique because the music that was being played reminded me of things before Christ. Now, there wasn't anyone there saying, well, you know, we're going to stop playing music for you. No, that's something I had to learn to do. But I'm, I'm trying to share with you something that we all bring things into our Christian life where we are sensitive, where there may be freedom, but we're sensitive. We might struggle with certain things. Now, thinking of this more kind of religiously, if a woman's grown up in a Muslim context, but she has drawn by the Holy Spirit to embrace Christ, she will likely come into her newfound faith, bringing with her a level of modesty that has been present in her former religion and culture. It would be foolish of us to say, hey, let's go to the beach. Here's a swimsuit for you. She is not going to be comfortable. There's a whole world of culture that is there. And as Christians, we would want to We'd want to make sure that we are being charitable and we're cautious and sensitive to what would likely be a struggle for her. If someone comes from a Hindu context, maybe a believer, and you're inviting them over for a meal, don't think that a nice juicy steak is what you should serve. Think through it a little bit. Right? Now, there's freedom in Christ to do these things. And this is the point, friends. Let's jump ahead here. Grace divided, grace deliberated, and now grace delivered. As a result of all this deliberation, they come now together to a decision. And what we're going to see in this last section, verses 22 through 35, is the wisdom of leadership and then the response of the people. I want to home in here on the, the wisdom of leadership, a couple of things that are worth noting here at the beginning. The decision that is made here is a decision of consensus. There's actually a oneness. It's talked about that in the actual letter. We, have, we, we, are, we are united in this. But it says in verse 22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders. 
What were they in consensus about? Well, first of all, the nature of the gospel, that it was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's worth noting that such an overwhelming consensus demonstrates that even the agitators that are mentioned in chapter 15 and verse 5 not only lost their case, but conceded their point. They had to agree that the elders and the apostles were right based on their arguments from experience as well as from Scripture. Secondly, the need for a letter written by the apostles and elders that would communicate their decision about the false teaching taking place. Letters are good things. Again, you may not know what a letter is today, but letters are good things. I mean, imagine if there was a group of people at the founding of our country that gathered together and said, let's make the United States America, and they all said, that's a great idea. What should it be like? I don't know, how about this, how about this, how about that? And they had some great ideas. They said, all right, let's go do it. Well, without the actual writing of the Constitution, you're going to have confusion. A document right, puts, puts in written form what has been discussed and what has been decided and what needs to take place and, and who it is that's making that decision. So there, there's a consensus about it, and there's a consensus about the need for men to carry the letter to the church. These are two men that are chosen who are, as we're told here, leading men among the brothers who accompany Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch. And there's wisdom in that, friends, because if Paul and Barnabas are the guys who were already contending with these brothers in Antioch, and they come back and say, well, the, the people up in, in, in Jerusalem, they said this. Well, how do we know that you didn't write this letter, right? How do we know that what you're saying is true? Well, there's these two other brothers that come. They're saying, look, we're coming as representatives of this Jerusalem council now with this letter. A lot of wisdom there, friends. The wisdom of leadership. And this wisdom brings authenticity and, and authority to what is now the letter. That's the second point here. And I'm not going to read through the whole letter. It's primarily the same content of what James uh, really kind of summarized together for us. It reflects those conclusions that were made at the council. But there's a number of distinctions that are at least worth noting. First of all, the letter lists the recipients. And remember, this was, this was something that happened in Antioch. But notice the recipients. The letter is addressed to the churches in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. In other words, there's an understanding that this issue, by this time, is probably not just settled in Antioch. It's probably already begun to reach other places. And this letter now needs to be sent with those places listed so that they would receive this authoritative instruction also. Secondly, notice the mention of the source of division. It says there, um, verse 24, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. This, this, this teaching did not come from us. It may have come from Judea, but it didn't come from the apostles and the elders. And third, notice lastly, the end of this letter. It's an appeal for an obedient response. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Now, friends, 
it's, it's a wonderful illustration of how leadership works together to deal with a topic, to address the topic, to, to measure it with experience, but the authority of scripture, and to come to a wise conclusion and want then to declare something for the health and the benefit of the body of Christ. But notice that's not the only thing that takes place. What we have here at the end of this is the response of the people. And, and without reading all through this, just notice these words. There's rejoicing. There is encouragement. There's strengthening. There's peace. There's edification. As a result of all this hard work and time and effort of discussion and deliberation and writing letters and traveling and accompanying people, it's all done out of love for the gospel, the love for the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love for the purity and the health of his church. Friends, a dangerous and destructive teaching had arisen among the, the new Jewish converts, which was impacting the church as a whole. And the Gentile believers in particular and the leadership of the church have been carefully deliberated on the issue from both apostolic experience and the evidence of scripture rightly determines that no matter where you're from or what your background is, salvation is always by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Sound doctrine, gospel clarity, unity around the word, instruction in righteousness are all liberating refreshment to God's people. We would rather live with clarity than fuzziness. Right? You want to know what is true, what is certain, what is real. Not just kind of like, eh, I think I know what it is. And here the church sets out clarity. Grace alone, not grace plus anything. Grace alone. Let's just bring all this to a conclusion now. First of all, this passage, I just want to pull this out. There's a call here for gospel vigilance. We must always be on the lookout for any kind of teaching that seeks to distort the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It's no small thing to somehow tweak the gospel. It's no small thing to kind of slip the, the something in and say, well, you actually have to do this. You, know, you actually have to speak in tongues in order to be saved, right? The elders of the church have the responsibility to protect the, the flock from wolves who come in. And the problem today is that they come in from all sorts of ways that we have less control over. I can't control what you click on your computer, what YouTube videos you watch, what nonsense is out there that somehow pops up in your emails, right? You can't always control that. But it's there, and we can be quickly led astray. And salvation is always by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But man always has a tendency to want to add to God's word. And there's a principle, friends, that we, uh, we're in the concluding thoughts, by the way, point number one. There's a, there's a principle that we teach in Simeon Trust training. Um, okay, that it's not up there. All right. Um, it, it's called staying on the line. I'm sorry about that. It's called staying on the line. And, and the principle basically says this. If we, if we stay on the line of Scripture, 
Uh, we should stay on the line of Scripture, never straying above it, and never straying below it. In other words, God has spoken. He has said some things that are true. What his word says is what his word says. If we add to it, we are now drifting toward legalism. So things like, in order to be truly saved, you must speak in tongues, you must be baptized, you must give money, you must go on a pilgrimage. Or you must change your ways and change your appearance or change your performance before you can actually be a truly converted believer. No, friends, change is the fruit of the gospel applied in our lives. But if we, if we go above what Scripture says, which is so easy for us to do, it tends toward living by some kind of rules or thinking that, that I have to do something in order to be saved. If you go below it, you begin to drift toward liberalism. I don't mean society's liberalism, although there's similarities, but we're talking about theological liberalism. right? And, and what I mean by that then is that we're saying less than what the Scripture says. There's a tendency that to, to, to not want to actually say that what God says is true. Oh, you don't really have to be saved in that way. You know, the lie of Satan. Did God actually say? So we're, we're, we're here, there's a tendency here to, to leave out the necessary components of the gospel. That faith in Christ alone, that's nah, not really necessary. Or repentance of sin, nah, that's not what really salvation is all about. All I have to do is just believe. Right? The, the, the need for a savior or for a blood sacrifice, oh no, 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 we don't want to get into all the bloody stuff, that's nasty. No, I just want Jesus as my co-pilot. Or this idea that God is a God of love, not a God of wrath. Way below the line. Or that Jesus simply needs to be added to your life. Or I just believe in God. You see, these are things that diminish and water down the gospel so that it's no longer any kind of gospel. So we've always got to be careful that we're staying on the line of Scripture, not straying above it and not straying Below it. Friends, that's always a challenge, isn't it? Because there's things that God's word brings up that we're like, no, I don't know about that. I don't know if I want to embrace that. But there's a call for gospel vigilance, not only for our salvation, but also for our sanctification. Both are necessary. Secondly, there's a call for gospel charity. We must always exercise charity when we interact with Christians who have been brought into the body of Christ from a culture and a context or a circumstance where our Christian freedoms are not welcome or appreciated. That means we don't impose extra biblical burdens on people, but it also means that we're not guilty of being insensitive to those who have a weaker conscience. And for many in the church, we understand this concept of Christian liberty falsely. I remember when I was kind of younger and growing up, Christian liberty was kind of, oh, okay, I get, to, I get to do these things. I have the Christian freedom to do this. I'm exercising Christian liberty. It was kind of like the youth statement if you were ever caught doing something you shouldn't be doing. Well, I'm just exercising Christian liberty. No, Christian liberty is the freedom to not do something that you are free to do in Christ for the sake of other people who are weaker in their conscience. So it's the willingness to say, you know what, I could do X, Y, and Z. I have the freedom to do that, but if I were to do it, it would be a stumbling block to these people. 
it would cause them some struggle. That's what James is getting at in this. He's saying to the Gentiles, look, these Jews are going to come into this Christian faith with, I'll put it this way, I don't mean it to be pejorative, but they're going to come with some hang-ups. They're going to come with some history. They're going to come with some, some ritualism and some things that, that, that have been a part of their life. And if you come along and you just kind of like, Psh, we're free in Christ, we don't have to worry about that, you're not caring for your brother. And so friends, this is, this is you know, James is saying, look, there's, there's a need for us to be vigilant about the gospel. Yes! But we also need to be people who are called to live charitably to one another. And that means letting go maybe of a want. I've shared the story a number of times, maybe more personally to some of you, maybe in a home group context. I've even probably shared it in church on Sunday morning. I don't remember these things, guys. Um, but this, this, this illustration I think is helpful because it had an impact on me. I once attended a fundraising event for a local Christian charity organization that seeks to help men on the streets and offers sobriety programs. And that night, three men who had gone through the sobriety program were going to share words of testimony of how long they had been sober and how God had helped them through this process to be restored and to live functioning lives. And it was a, a wonderful time. They got up and they spoke and shared their testimonies. But I was shocked by what I was seeing because at this event, which was a fundraising event, there was an open bar. And 90% of the door prizes were various forms of alcoholic beverage. So why these guys are getting up and sharing their testimony, people are like, hey, that's really good, you know, clack, 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 clack. And I just thought to myself, there's freedom in Christ here, but wisdom isn't being applied by any means. What's up with this? Well, I think what's up with it is that money was far more important than taking care of their brothers at that point in time. Sad. It's my, my assessment. But friends, this is the kind of stuff we've got to be careful about, right? God calls us to work hard at encouraging, strengthening, equipping, and living in true fellowship with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And that means being willing to not do something that I have the freedom to do for the sake of gospel fellowship and growth. It means loving my brothers and sisters in Christ more than my freedoms. I want to finish up here with the passage we began with this morning. Because the Apostle Paul writing to Titus, chapter 2 and verse 11 and following says this, For the grace of God, in other words, his gospel, has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, right? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. In other words, it doesn't mean now I'm saved, oh, we're done, it's all, I don't do anything now. No, you're called by grace to be avoiding things, to not do certain things, and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace calls us to, to rest in grace, but grace also calls to be actively living in 
grace, with minds that are wise and loving and charitable to those who are also our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, help us today. We're thankful, Lord, that this council took place. Lord, we know that you're sovereign the providence, your providence carries through and the gates of hell, Lord, will not prevail against the church. But we look back in history and we say, wow, if this hadn't happened, the kind of mess that could have taken place uh, in the body of Christ at that time would have been significant. And yet, Lord, you brought godly people together, different people together, who were willing to, to be reminded of the things that you had said, the things that you had said when you commissioned them to ministry, the gospel that, you, that, that your son Jesus Christ communicated that they should preach, as well as the, the testimony of Scripture. All those things coming together, Lord, help them to make a decision that was right, but then also a decision that was wise for the care and the health and the unity of the body of Christ. And friends, there's a, there's a humility and there's a boldness going on here. And Lord, would you, would you allow us, Lord, to, to see, first of all, that salvation is by grace alone. And Lord, we can say that so many times and forget the importance of it. Lord, <laughs> in Christ alone, my hope is found, right? All I have is Christ. We sing these songs, Lord. And here we have the passage of Scripture that is just screaming at us. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But Lord, it's also screaming at us to love one another and to struggle with our wants and our loves for your glory. Help us, Lord, to be sensitive to that. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.